You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Genesis chapter 50. You'll remember last week as we were wrapping up chapter 49, uh, we discussed um, just the implications of living our life in such a way where that we're defined by faith rather than sin. Um, you'll remember um, as Jacob is blessing his sons and saying his goodbyes that some of his sons, um, tragically, are, are defined more by their sin than by their faith. And we taught last week as believers in the New Testament, we want to fight to ensure that our life is defined by faith rather than by sin. And one of the ways that we do that is we keep our hope focused on the fact that ultimately salvation is coming, which will put an end to our fighting. But we saw last week that sinful actions can bring about permanent consequences uh, Reuben's lust uh, forfeited his influence, and so moving forward, Reuben would not be a leader of the children of Israel. Um, we talked about how there's no leadership found in his, um, in his uh, descendants, that there's no kings or prophets or priests or judges, um, that the scriptures are silent about any type of leadership coming from the tribe of Reuben. We talked about Simeon's anger forfeiting his presence, that Um, and his anger towards the uh, events with Dinah, that he had gone to extinguish the Shechemites, and that his anger and his joy in that anger ultimately leads to him just disappearing and his tribe basically being absorbed and and, and sort of disappearing in the um, histories of Israel. But then we saw faithful work can oftentimes redefine a sinful past, that just because we've made sinful choices, it doesn't mean that that has to define us, that um, we can come back from those things. And, and we saw two examples of that, one being Levi, who was just as guilty as uh, Simeon. But Levi was one who took that anger, turned it more into a righteous anger, and we saw him um, being used by God as a tool to bring punishment on those that worshiped false gods in the history of Israel. And so Levi redeems himself. And when we think about the tribe of Levi, Uh, most of us are going to immediately start to think about the priesthood. And so um, his actions helped redefine uh, what was previously a sinful past. And then Judah being a great example, who previously had had, uh, been a leader, but a poor leader in that he had led the, the brothers to get rid of Joseph. He then demonstrates sacrificial leadership when he offers himself instead of Benjamin. And so God ends up giving him leadership over the tribes of Israel, and ultimately the kings would come from him, and ultimately Christ coming from the tribe of Judah. So faithful working can redefine a sinful past. And then we close last week seeing that mankind at his best reminds us of greater things still to come. That when we see Jacob and, and even Joseph and all their glory and We see um, Judah and the promise of kings to come from him that even in their best, um, even in their best, mankind living up to his best potential, it still leaves us wanting. It still leaves us desiring more. And uh, Jacob talks about the, uh, the one that would come from Judah, the ultimate salvation that would come through that tribe that, that we look forward to. And so we said the application wise last week, we must keep our hope on the one who is still to come, which is appropriate um, as we're in the Christmas season. And then we direct our attention to Genesis chapter 50 with the death of Jacob and the death of Joseph um, and the implications of that um, for us. So we start with our summary sentence today. The title of our sermon today is Dying with Hope, as we have two deaths and two burials in this chapter. Our summary sentence, as believers, we are to live 
so that our trust in God's sovereignty causes death to lose its crippling power and suffering fades into his sovereign plan, providing a hopeful confidence in the ultimate future in store for us. As believers, we are to live so that our trust in God's sovereignty causes death to lose its crippling power and suffering to fade into his sovereign plan, providing a hopeful confidence in the ultimate future in store for us. For our kids, we don't have to fear death or worry about bad things happening to us because God is in control and has a great future in store for us. So kind of breaking down that sentence, <clears throat> believers, we want to live trusting in God's sovereignty. And when we've, when we've wrapped our minds as much as we can around God's sovereignty and his, uh, his rule and his reign for good purposes, it allows things like death to no longer cripple us. Um, because we have a hope of a future. And so as we experience the death, death of loved ones, as we approach our own deaths, trusting in God's sovereignty frees us from the crippling power of death. We've been set free from that, right? We've been set free from that because we know we have a hope, a future, um, that our life, our existence doesn't end with death. Um, but it also allows suffering to fade into God's sovereign plan. So when, we, when we've embraced God's sovereignty, when, when bad things are happening to us, when suffering is happening to us, if, if persecution were to happen to us, those things, uh, we respond differently to those things because we see God's sovereign good plan and how those things just fit into it, right? Joseph expresses that to his brothers. He says, look, you guys meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Like I filter everything that happens to me through God's good sovereign plan and it causes me to react differently. In fact, it causes me to react differently than you would expect me to act, right? The brothers think Joseph should act a certain way towards them and they haven't let go of that. Now that Jacob passes away, the fear grips them again and they think you should be angry at us. You should retaliate against us. And Joseph says, you still don't get it. God meant it for good. And I filter everything through that belief system. And so when bad things happen to me, my, my inclination is not to react. My inclination is not to retaliate because I can see this being part of God's good plan. Um, so, so embracing God's sovereignty, death doesn't cripple us. Suffering, um, we, we fit it into God's plan. And then it provides a hopeful confidence in the ultimate future in store for us. And that's what we see as chapter 50 closes. We see hope being extended. Uh, we, we see uh, Joseph as he's now ready to pass away at the end of this chapter. Joseph on death's doorstep exuding hope back to his family members. Um, he, he, he's got hope that this isn't the end, that there's far more to come uh, for them to look forward to. And so we'll look at that um, as we get into uh, today's text. Some introductory notes just to um, help summarize the chapter. Uh, God keeps his promise to Jacob. You'll remember back in Genesis chapter 46 verse 4, uh, that God made a promise to Jacob, and he keeps that promise in chapter 50. So just another good example, good reminder, another um, act of God that we can kind of bank um, as another reason to trust him and uh, to believe that he'll keep his promises to us. It says in Genesis 46 verse 4, I myself will go down with you to Egypt, talking God, talking to uh, Jacob to give him encouragement to leave and to go. And I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. 
Um, so he indicates to Jacob that the, the move is right, that they should move to Egypt. Remember, he, we talked about him kind of wrestling through that. Circumstances said to do it. The advice of others said to do it, but is ultimately God wanting him to do it. And so God gives him that assurance. And, and in the midst of that assurance, God says, here's a, here's, a, here's a little token for you, something that I know will be important to you. When it comes time for you to die, Joseph will be there. Joseph will be by your side when you die. And we see that in Genesis chapter 50. We saw last week at the close of chapter 49 that um, Jacob dies. And we learn in chapter 50 that Joseph's right there. It says in verse 33 of chapter 49, when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. And then in verse 1 of chapter 50, then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. So God keeps his promise there to Jacob. Joseph is present at his death to close his eyes. Um, the funeral procession that we've already read through this morning serves as a preview for the Exodus, right? So Jacob dies and Joseph gets permission. Look at how he gets permission from Pharaoh to go and do this. Similar to how Moses has to come and, and get permission from Pharaoh for his people to leave. Joseph gets permission and says, hey, I promised my dad that I would bury him back home with his ancestors. Pharaoh gives permission. And then you have Israelites and Egyptians both leaving to go to this funeral, right? And when the exodus happens, it's not just Israelites that leave, there's Egyptians that go with them. And so they, they are kind of previewing what it's going to look like 400 years later when they all really leave for the final time. This funeral kind of serves as a preview for that. In fact, they take the exact same route that they would take 400 years later when they leave Egypt for that final exodus. So it really is kind of a true preview. Um, and I don't know about you, when I read this, I get the impression that it doesn't it doesn't really take a whole long, a real long time to get there, right? Like we don't know how fast they journeyed, but I do think if you look at the map, you can see the Exodus should have never taken the amount of time that it took uh, the children of Israel to actually settle in the promised land, right? It's sin, it's doubt, um, it's mistrust in God that ultimately causes them to have to wander around in between Egypt and the promised land for so many years. This should have been a quick journey. This should have been over very fast. They journey over here, get a funeral in, and then hop back to Egypt seemingly pretty quickly, <coughs> which just goes to show that the exodus should have been a quick procedure as well had the children of Israel trusted God like they should have. There's clear instructions here, um, just kind of as a side note. Um, clear instructions and a responsible person in charge make for a smooth funeral. A smooth funeral right? Like Jacob's very intentional. He puts somebody in charge of his funeral arrangements. He gives clear instructions. I don't know about you, but, but I've been a part of uh, a funerals of deaths where somebody really wasn't putting in charge and, and somebody wasn't really clear about the directions and it can cause family tension. And we don't have that here. Uh, Jacob and his foresight knew how important it was to have Joseph in charge of his funeral arrangements um, and how important it was to have clear directions about what was to happen to his body. There's no questions. Um, the brothers aren't sitting around trying to decide what to do with it. Jacob was very clear in his instructions. Um, I think it's also interesting to note that uh, Joseph is about 56 years old uh, when, when Jacob dies. Um, so remember, he came to power in Egypt when he was 30. Um, he gets about 16, 17 years with Jacob after he comes to power. Um, so he's in his 50s when when um, his dad dies. And then he's gonna live 
really for another 50 plus years before he'll die. So Joseph in his 50s, when dad dies, he's going to live another 50 plus years before he himself dies. And think about it, he comes to power when he's 30 years old and he dies at the age of 110. So he lives for 80 years in the comforts of Egypt as second in command, right? Like that's a long time. Um, And what I found interesting is that when we talk about Joseph and you ask somebody to describe Joseph's life, they're gonna describe it as a life of suffering, right? They're gonna talk about the hardships that Joseph went through, right? Like he was separated from his family when he was younger. He, he was hated by his brothers and he was, um, he was um, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, which then forced him to stay in jail for how long? Two years, right? Two years pales in comparison to 80 years of being in charge of Egypt, right? So we're, we're quick, to, and, it, and it's appropriate, and it's right to say that Joseph went through some suffering in his life, and Joseph demonstrated great faith in that suffering, which sets him up for the last 80 years of his life. But let's not lose sight of the fact that God, that, that, that Joseph's good God, the same God that we serve, really tips the scale and tips the balances in the favor of Joseph for the bulk of his life. 80 plus years or 80 years or so, I mean, he is, he's living the life, right? He is, he is living the most comfortable life possible due to the fact that he demonstrated such great faith in his suffering. Um, and so it's a testimony to God's goodness and provision that God really did mean it for good. Because you read, you read this, and if you're like me, you just kind of read it, you know, account to account, and you kind of think that all this happens really fast, that, you know, Joseph rises to power, then his dad comes, but his dad dies really fast, and then Joseph dies right after him. Because if you just read through chapter 50, Jacob dies, he has a conversation with his brothers, and then all of a sudden he's on his deathbed, and you're like, wow, they just, they died really close together, but they didn't. There's 50 plus years here in between their two deaths, and it's 50 plus prosperous years, where the Bible even says, where we read this morning, he gets to see like his great-great-grandchildren, right? Like he lives a long, good life and dies in the comforts of Egypt. And, and I think that's a testimony to God's goodness and how God really did um, work things for the good of Joseph. All right, let's jump into um, our notes this morning. Number one, as we get into the text, the death and burial of believers is an opportunity to demonstrate faith in future promises. The death and burial of believers is an opportunity to demonstrate faith in future promises. For our kids, death is a chance for others to know what we believe. Death is a chance for others to know what we believe. Now, none of us like to talk about death, and for funerals certainly aren't the the, the, the preferred topic of conversation. Um, but I think it's important for us to think about what takes place in this chapter to ensure that our funerals maximize the glory of God. Um, and in order for them to be that, in order for our funerals to be a tool, to be an instrument that maximizes the glory of God in the, in the hearts and minds of those that are at our funeral, it really starts right now. For the funeral to be that type of funeral, it necessitates certain actions right now, and we're going to talk about that. Um, but you see Jacob, back in chapter 49, you'll remember he, he's talking heavily uh, to his brother or to his sons about where and what is supposed to happen to his body. He says in verse 29 of chapter 49, after he's already told Joseph, 
just to make it clear to everybody else. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah. There I buried Leah. That's where I want to be buried. And Jacob's very clear with these instructions. And, and we see those instructions being carried out by Joseph and his brothers. Um, it says in verse 12, Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan, buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. The language is very clear that what Jacob wanted is actually what happens, that his, that his sons carry out that dying wish for him. There's 70 days of mourning that takes place. Um, let me give you uh, point number one. Death is an opportunity for the extent of your influence to be made known. Death is an opportunity for the extent of your influence to be made known. I want you to, I want you to picture what happens with this funeral. There's 70 days that the nation of Egypt commits to mourning for Jacob. Now, whether that's commanded or whether that was simply heartfelt by the Egyptians, we're not really told. But what we do know is that it's about two days short of the requirement for mourning for a Pharaoh. So that kind of lets you know how valued Jacob was in the short amount of time that he was in Egypt and probably more of a testimony to how valued Joseph was in the hearts of the Egyptians, that they basically give the greatest honor to Jacob and his death that they can give short of him being a Pharaoh, that they mourn for him as a nation for 70 days. And then this funeral procession that, that follows the brothers to, um, back to the promised land is huge. Jacob get, or Joseph gets permission from Pharaoh to, to take the body back. And uh, it says in verse seven, so Joseph went up to bury his father, with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with them both chariots and horsemen. It was a great company. In fact, the Egyptians probably outnumber the Israelites, why would you say that? Because in verse 11, when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning for the, by the Egyptians, right? Like it's, it's heavy Egyptian um, at this funeral to the point that the locals in the promised land, the Canaanites, look on and see, see it as an Egyptian funeral. There's so many Egyptians there. This is, this is a huge company of people that, that journey back to the promised land with the Israelites to participate in this funeral. The grieving is felt by the local Canaanites as they look on and see this. And for me, what, what you see is the influence, like I said, that Jacob has had, even if it means it's through Joseph. Even if, if these people are there strictly for Joseph and their relationship to Joseph, it speaks volumes of Jacob's relationship and what he's done with Joseph and the raising that he's done with Joseph for Joseph to have that kind of influence. I don't know if you've ever thought about who will be at your funeral. I don't know if you've ever thought about how many people will be at your funeral, but I can tell you that when your funeral happens, it will testify to the type of influence that you've had on other people. 
the people that, that have loved you and that you have poured into, the people that consider you valuable are gonna show up at your funeral. And it will be a testimony to others the type of influence that you've had. You know, it's not uncommon at times when tragedy happens in one of our towns uh, to see the town shut down at times for people that, that have died tragically. There, there was one recently, back at Thanksgiving, a, a young man in the area um, who had passed away and, and there was this huge funeral procession for him. Um, police and firemen and others that, that, that knew him or knew of his family. Um, just this just huge uh, commitment to him on his funeral day. The type of influence that he had, the type of individuals. There was a huge uh, prayer vigil at, at one of the churches where kids from the public schools came in to grieve over the loss of this, of this young man. Your funeral will testify the type of influence that you've had. It'll testify as to whether you lived your life for yourself or, you were, or if you were one of those type of people who lived your life in such a way that you touched others and affected others. Jacob has that type of funeral, right? It's a huge company that wants to be there to help lay him to rest. And so I would challenge you to think, again, it's not a, it's not a pleasant thought to think about your funeral and to think about death. But if, and I would hope, if you wanna be the type of person who has um, a ton of influence and really makes your life count, it's gonna show itself in your funeral. And the only way to have people at your funeral that want to be there to celebrate your life is to start now and to live in such a way that you're touching and influencing people, that you're pouring into others and not living strictly for yourself. That's what we see in Jacob's funeral. Tons of people wanna be there to help lay him to rest. Number two, not only is death an opportunity for the extent of your influence to be made known, number two It's a reminder that the effects of sin touch everyone. It's a reminder that the effects of sin touch everyone. The great Jacob is laid to rest with Abraham and Isaac. And I I think it's interesting because as the brothers and as the family goes back, we're not given any indication that they had ever been back to this place before. Like, I don't know if, if they went and visited gravesides like, like we do in our culture. Um, they may not have been back there ever. Like, some of these family members may have been going there for the very first time. Um, at our family with the McLeods, we, <coughs> at Easter time, we go and visit family members' uh, gravesides um, to help our kids understand the hope of the resurrection. And so we go and, and we tell them about family members that they've never met before that have passed away. And, and we talk to them about the, the hope that we have that we're going to see these people again. And so we tell them stories about our grandparents that they never met. And um, so we take them. And so we want our kids to know where our ancestors are buried. Um, what's, what's interesting, though, is that we can't show them the bodies of our ancestors, right? But but these guys are buried in a cave. They're not buried in the ground. So it's very likely as the brothers or pallbearers to take Jacob's body into this cave that, that it's possible that they are able to say, hey, there's, there's Abraham and, and there's Isaac and, and, and there's, uh, there's Sarah and, and Rebecca and, and Leah. And, and as they're laying them to rest, um, it, would have been, it would have been worthy conversation to, to reminisce about these guys that had already passed away and had gone ahead before them and, and um, just the hope that they had built around the land and, and the promises that God had made to Abraham's descendants. And um, what you see playing out here is appropriate grief, but I think also grief that's tied to hope, right? It's right to feel the pain of the enemy of death, but as First Thessalonians 4.13 says, we grieve differently. 
Um, we as a church family should grieve differently when we approach funerals, um, especially if it's a funeral of, of a believer because we have the hope of, of resurrection. Um, I think Joseph leads his family into grieving for 70 days, which, which may be, uh, we may be guilty of not grieving enough at times because if you had somebody that was grieving for 70 days, um, you may start to worry about them and thinking that, hey, it's time to move on. They commit the appropriate time to grieving, but you see hope attached to that grieving, right? Like the intentionality of taking the, the body back to that land and the belief that God wasn't done with, with uh, the descendants of Abraham. And so there's a lot of hope tied to their grieving, but death is certainly a reminder that the effects of sin touch everyone. And then number three, Death is an opportunity to communicate hope in the resurrection. Death is an opportunity to communicate hope in the resurrection. The burial of a Christian body should give testimony that the one who died believed in the future resurrection of their body. We talked previously um, in Genesis with, with one of the funerals, and uh, we talked and dialogued about the difference between burial and cremation and how to dispose of the human body in death. And we kind of left that up as a, as a position that you need to explore personally. Um, we don't have any indication in Scripture uh, of a Christian cremation. Um, not to say that it would be wrong to do so, because in the end, our bodies end up in, in the form of dust. But a lot of advocates for the burial of the body will hold to this idea that it's the best way to communicate that the body is not done with yet, right? That the body will be resurrected because it is our body that goes. So we talk about getting new bodies. We're not getting fresh new bodies that that don't have an original source, right? It's the bodies that we have that get magically, radically transformed by God's power into glorified bodies, We don't get brand new bodies that start over with no original source. They come from the original source that's laid into the ground, right? Thessalonians talks about those that are still alive, we're gonna just be simply caught up together with them in the clouds and our our bodies are gonna be changed. But those that had gone before us, they're gonna be reunited with their bodies. And so the burial process, and I think that's why the care that's given here to Jacob is such an encourage, or should be such an encouragement to us to have the same type of attitude. There's great care in where that body was placed. And by handling the body the way they do, they are preaching a message to all those that were there at that funeral, that, that, there's, there, there's, um, that there's a hope of the future for this people. Um, and I think the Egyptians are starting to learn that. And I think it's maybe why even many uh, decide to leave uh, years later when the exodus happens. But the implication for us from this first section as we laid Jacob to rest is that finishing well requires being faithful now. Finishing well requires being faithful now. So to have that type of funeral where people show up and people uh, mourn your death, that starts now. We interviewed a football coach um, the past couple of weeks that um, I'm keeping my fingers crossed comes to Trinity because um, he is just a phenomenal man of God, um, one that I would look forward to being underneath and, and learning from and growing from. Um, but one of the things, he's got a ministry to dads at his current school, and um, one of the things that he challenges the men at his school is this idea that on your deathbed, the things that are important then have to be important now. 
um, that, that you're never going to say, hey, I wish I had worked more or I wish I had done this more. Like you're going you're gonna to say, I wish I'd invested in my family more. I wish I'd spent more time with my kids. I wish I'd, I'd done certain things. He says, you need to picture yourself at the end of your life and what would be important then and make those things what's important now. Um, and that's, what, that's the idea here with this, this discussion about funerals, that, that Jacob had obviously lived his life where people cared about the fact that he was gone. Um, and in order for us to be that, and again, it's not about us and us receiving glory on our, on our day of death. It's really about the investment that we've made in others. And I think we would all agree that, wow, we hope that we haven't wasted our life when it's all said and done, that we've been faithful to live for others and invest in others and serve others as God has called us to. Um, and, and that'll be testified by the fact that people show up at our funeral, that, that we've meant something to other people. And um, so my challenge to you would be to think about what that looks like and what does it take to get that type of funeral. Finishing well requires being faithful now. Number two, the anxieties and fears that come with death are best controlled by focusing on God's sovereignty. The anxieties and fears that come with death are best controlled by focusing on God's sovereignty. For our kids, death is not something we should fear as believers. So we go through this funeral procession with with Jacob passing away and uh, Joseph going to great care to make sure that the body is transported back to the promised land as Jacob has requested. And so the brothers help fulfill those purposes. And as a good sign that we mourn differently, all the brothers seem to be able to move past the death of their father, right? They go back to their regular lives. And in verse 15, it says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. So you, you have the death, and in the aftermath of the death, anxieties and fears start to set in. And, and funerals have that type of effect on people a lot of times. It, it causes us to think about things that otherwise we wouldn't think about, right? Most of us, when we attend a funeral, inevitably we start to think about our own funerals and our own deaths. And um, it causes us to have fears and anxieties and thoughts that previously we would not have had. And so um, it can be a good opportunity to address thing and uh, address things and and think about things that need to be uh, need to have our attention, but it can certainly create situations that are unhealthy. And this is an unhealthy situation that develops between the brothers and Joseph because what what what's shown here is that while there's been reconciliation and there's been an embracement and and they seem to have moved past this. I mean, we're a good decade plus in to the reconciliation process. They've been living with Joseph for a while now. Um, but what we find is that they've attributed the, the kindness of Joseph to Jacob's presence. That the only reason Joseph hasn't done anything is because dad's here. And now that dad is gone, that, that protection, that shield has been removed. And, and Joseph's very likely going to now retaliate and do what we've always expected him to do. Number one, God's sovereignty protects us from the worst case scenarios. God's sovereignty protects us from worst case scenarios. 
Death and the fear of death often, often causes anxiousness regarding the unknown. The brothers feared Joseph and what he might do now that the protective care of their father is removed. And so they go to work, right? They, they, they try to stage uh, further forgiveness, and they, they basically say, hey, dad said you had to forgive us, right? Like, the dad that we feel like has been protecting us, we're going to try to draw upon his influence from the grave. We don't know if Jacob ever said this or didn't. I tend to think that they probably lied about this and made this up. Hey, Joseph, I know you spent a lot of time with dad as he was dying, but there was that one time when you took a bathroom break and we were there and he told us, you have to forgive us, that what we did was evil and, and we're sorry for it and you need to extend forgiveness to us. And, and so they're, they're really concerned as to what Joseph might do and, and they actually offer themselves as servants to Joseph, right? Like we sold you as a slave, we're willing to be a slave now. Whatever it takes, for you to forgive us. And they stage this requirement for forgiveness and, and try to manipulate the situation. The brothers expect Joseph to treat them like they treated him. And I think oftentimes we often expect others to do what we would plan to do ourselves. This probably gives us further insight into where their hearts are even at. Um, you know, as, this, as we've been interviewing this coach, we've been... Um, overthinking every step and, and overthinking every response of his. We're trying to figure out, is this guy coming or not? Like, we know it's kind of a long shot that he would, he would get him to our school. And so we've been overanalyzing and processing things that he said. What does that mean? And, and so I'm very quick to say, well, here's what I think it means, or here's what I think he's doing, because it's what I would be doing if I was in that situation, right? That we oftentimes expect others to act the way that we think we would act in that situation. And so the brothers are thinking, if it's me and, and I'm Joseph, I'm probably retaliating against us, right? Dad's gone. He's probably going to do something to us. So it probably shows us a little bit about where their hearts and where their attitudes are at in that they're fearful that Joseph's going to act the way that they would probably act. And Joseph's grieved over this because in his mind, he's thinking, we've moved past this. It says in verse 19, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So God's sovereignty protects us from worst case scenarios. This is worst case scenario for the brothers. And it's, it's, it's sometimes tempting for us when, when we do fear the unknown to come up with worst case scenarios right? Like, like this is the worst thing that could happen, and it's probably what is going to happen. Um, and so we can be tempted to, to fall prey to that, right? But what's, what's encouraging for us as believers is that God's sovereignty and his promises of good, it automatically protects us from worst case scenarios. Um, in fact, it protects us from, from scenarios that, that are close to being the worst case scenarios, right? God's sovereignty ensures the best case scenarios for us in all situations. It guarantees the best case scenarios, right? Ben prayed about it this morning. It's always plan A, it's never plan B, right? Wickedness and evil never mess up God's plan. So not only does it protect us from worst case scenarios, it protects us from all other scenarios besides the best scenario. Um, and, and that's the perspective that Joseph has. He says, you guys are being ridiculous. Like, why are you still hung up on the fact that y'all did this and you think I'm gonna be mad about it? God meant it for good. God's sovereignty protects us from worst case scenarios. Number two, God's forgiveness 
God's forgiveness protects us from eternal payback. God's forgiveness protects us from eternal payback. If you were to go back and read Genesis 45, 5 through 15, you don't know why this is even included in here. It's like, we've already done this, right? If you go back and read Genesis 45, 5 through 15, Joseph tells him, hey, you meant it for evil? God meant it for good. Like, everything's fine. Come, come move here with me. Let me take care of you. Let me protect you. Like, reconciliation's already happened. Um, this, you might could equate this to somebody who, who is doubting their salvation, right? Somebody who has experienced salvation, somebody who, who has the Holy Spirit living inside of them, somebody who has experienced what it means to be forgiven, but the guilt kind of springs up and the enemy uses it against them and they start to doubt, can God really love me? Um, can God really love me with the things that I've done? Right, like that's kind of what we have here. The, the equivalent to somebody doubting their salvation and wondering, did God really forgive me? Does God really love me? That's where the brothers are at. Does Joseph really care about us? Does Joseph really want us here? Does Joseph really love us? Or is he about to um, drop the hammer on us? The brothers confess that they have, they've done evil and that it was unwarranted. And then Joseph models true forgiveness. Forgiveness that really casts away their fears. And it's the model that we're supposed to follow. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, verse 15, says, um, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. That's the kind of the language that Moses incorporates into Genesis chapter 50. This idea of doing good and not retaliating. He says, um, do not fear, I'll provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Well, how does Joseph maintain this perspective? Like, like how can he not retaliate? And Joseph gives us a couple of reasons for his perspective. He says, first of all, in verse 19, am I in the place of God? Joseph says, I'm not gonna play God in this situation. And what's crazy is that he actually could have, right? Like we talk about, hey, if somebody does something against us, we shouldn't retaliate. And, and a lot of times we're not even in a position to really retaliate, right? But this is the equivalent of, um, of somebody being a king or a president and having the opportunity to inflict justice and choosing not to. I mean, he could have acted like God in this situation. As the, as the second ruler of Egypt, he could have punished his brothers. He could have retaliated. Um, he could have done it in the right way. He could have done it through the, their legal system. But he says, you know what? I'm not going to. I'm not in the place of God here. He trusts God to right the wrongs done to him. So the first, the first thing that shapes his perspective is that he doesn't see himself as being capable of playing the role of God. Number two, he finds the good in everything, right? <clears throat> he says, no evil or harm uh, planned towards me um, violates God's purposes. Um, no evil or harm uh, is planned for God's people. So we have to keep this in mind. Genesis 50, 20, Jeremiah 29, 11, and Romans 8, 29 are three key passages that remind us that God never plans evil or harm for us, right? Genesis 50, 20, you meant evil against me, God meant it for good. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, um, a passage that is given to the nation of Israel 
But again, I promise that I think we have every right to claim now that we're grafted into the nation of Israel. But in context, this is prior to them going into captivity with Babylon, which is gonna be a hard stretch of life for them. But what does God say? I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope, right? God extends to them a message of hope as they prepare to go into a time of suffering. Romans 8, 28 and 29, that God works all things for good to those who love him. These are passages of scripture that Joseph understood, even if he didn't have all three of them yet, that God never plans evil or harm for his people. In fact, when evil looks to be in the driver's seat, God reminds his people that he is ultimately in control. Joseph promises kindness, provision, and comfort with no demands for payback. I put in my notes, Joseph knew two things. Nothing comes into our life that is not approved by God. He only approves things that are good for us. Think about that. Nothing comes into our life unless God approves of it. We see that clearly in the story of Job, right? Satan can't do anything to Job unless God gives approval. So, so nothing comes into our life that is not approved by God. And then the second thing that Joseph understood that we have to understand is that only good things get approved. Like only things that will result in our good get approved. Now, that doesn't mean that it's always desirable, right? Joseph is separated from his family. Joseph is wrongfully accused and thrown into prison for two years. But all those things work for good, and he gets 80 years in the palace, 80 years of comfort where he's second in command. Nothing happens to us that's not approved by God, and God only approves things that work for good for us. Those are two important truths for us to know. The implication of that is that a sovereign God who forgives liberally and acts graciously can be trusted in all circumstances. A sovereign God who forgives liberally and acts graciously can be trusted in all circumstances. Luke chapter 15, prodigal son comes home, right? And in his mind, he's thinking, my dad's not gonna forgive me, right? Like I've basically said I wished he was dead when I asked for his inheritance. Dad's not gonna forgive me, but maybe he'll hire me, right? Like maybe he'll let me be a servant. Maybe I can can work for dad because he's not gonna accept me back. Like he has no reason to. Kind of going back again to the idea that the son's thinking, if I was dad, I wouldn't accept me back, right? So he's operating like he is the dad, and he says, dad's not gonna love me. Dad doesn't want me back, but maybe he needs a servant. And what does dad do? Dad throws a party and throws a robe on him and welcomes him back as a full-fledged son. Um, Ephesians chapter two, uh, eight and nine, talks about the fact that we can't work for our salvation, but that's what we think, right? We think contrary to the gospel, like it blows our minds that an eternal holy God would forgive us of our sin and not demand righteousness in return from us. He does demand righteousness. He demands it from Christ, who is our substitute righteousness. But our minds think, oh, I need to work for God's favor. I have to do good things for God to love me. And that's contrary to the gospel. And Joseph says it's contrary to the way he operates too. He says, you're not gonna be my servants. You're not gonna be my slaves. I'm gonna provide for you. I'm gonna take care of you. And he's acting like, he's acting like Jesus here for us. He's showing us a human example of, of what gracious forgiveness looks like. And when you have a God who forgives like that and acts like that, then he can be trusted in all circumstances. 
And then lastly, number three, the prospect of dying. The prospect of dying gives a believer the opportunity to express a lasting memory of faith to others. The prospect of dying gives a believer the opportunity to express a lasting memory of faith to others. We've buried Jacob, Joseph and his brothers, continue to work on reconciliation. We fast forward 50 plus years. You don't get it in the text, but 22 and 21, there's about 50 years between those two verses. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you. You shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Some of us may get the opportunity to actually... um, talk through the prospects of of our death, right? Like some of us, some of us may go suddenly. God may call some of us home suddenly and there's no preparation. There's no conversations that happen. But for some of us, God, God may bless us to live to a ripe old age. And, and there's the opportunity to sit and to talk and to discuss our life and to pass on our wisdom to others. And Joseph gets that opportunity. Um, if we get the prospect of dying, or at least the idea that we know, hey, death is coming and it's coming soon, it gives us the opportunity to express a lasting memory of faith to others. Joseph leaves, however many brothers are left when he's dying, and we don't know if all of them are still alive or if just some of them, but whoever's there, we know some of the brothers are, and his guy, he's got grandkids and potentially great-grandkids. He's passing on to them the things that have, that have driven his life the faith that he's really clung to. And one of the messages that he's passing on to his family here is that death is not the end of our existence. Jacob was was faithful to this message as well. Back in chapter 49, Jacob says, I'm being gathered to my people. I'm 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 not ceasing to exist. This isn't the end for me. Jacob communicates. Joseph communicates. I'm I'm passing on to the next phase of life, right? Like God would have been very right to kill mankind with their sin, but God extends life into the afterlife. And, And Jacob says, I'm being gathered to my people. And Joseph says, this isn't the end for me. It's not the end of our existence. Number two, it's not the end of our story. It's not the end of our story. Let's think for a second about Joseph and his, and his, his great acts of faith. All right, we did this with, with Jacob recently. We, we talk about Joseph, and it's real easy to start listing off ways that he expressed faith, right? Like um, he expressed faith and trust in his dad when his brothers hated him. Um, he, he faithfully responded to his dad's um, command to go check on his brothers, which results in him being beaten up and thrown into prison. He's faithful when temptation faces him in Potiphar's house, right? Like he's faithful to God. He says, I'm not gonna do this. This is sinful towards God. 
he's faithful to God in prison. They're like, hey, you can interpret dreams. And, and Joseph says, well, it's, it's God who gives me the interpretations, right? Like he's faithful in Egypt when he has all the spoils of the world and all the temptation to abandon his God who seemingly abandoned him and go with the Egyptian gods. He's got, he's got all types of expressions of faith, right? Like you could, you, could, you could nominate any of these and say, hey, this ought to be on his inscription when he's put in the hall of faith. And yet, we go to Hebrews 11, verse 22. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. I mean, literally, on his deathbed, he has his greatest day of faith. He's lived 110 years. He's demonstrated faith in times where some of us would have faltered. And it's on his final day, his deathbed, that the author of Hebrews says, that was his best day. Like, he had his best day as a Christian on his last day. On his last day on his earth, he was exuding the type of faith that all of us should have. It says, by faith, he mentioned the Exodus. By faith, he believed the Israelites were going to leave Egypt. By faith, he gave directions concerning his bones. It's his greatest expression of faith in all of his life here on his deathbed. He communicates a belief that there's more to come. And you get two different pictures here, like two different ways to show faith. Jacob says, don't bury me here and don't leave me here a day longer than I need to be. Take me back to the promised land. So they all exodus back to the promised land and bury him. Joseph doesn't give those type of instructions though, right? There's speculation that maybe there had been a change in power and maybe permission wouldn't have been given for the brothers to do it. Maybe Joseph doesn't trust his brothers to do it the way that he did it for his dad. I think you need both pictures though. You got Jacob who said, don't bury me here, bury me back home because that's where we're gonna end up. And I think Joseph's body stands as a memorial for 400 years that we're not staying here, right? They don't put his coffin in the ground. His coffin kind of stands as a memorial that I'm only here temporarily. Think about it. Like they have to pass this, this legend down, 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 down so that people even know to grab that coffin on the way out. I mean, they leave in a hurry, right? Like death angel comes in and, and newborn or uh, firstborn sons are, are dying all across the land of Egypt and Pharaoh's angry and he's like, get out of here. Their, their Passover meal had to be eaten with unleavened bread because they didn't want to take the time to, to leaven it and have it bake and rise. I mean, it is a fast exodus. I mean, you're just grabbing stuff and shoving stuff and packing stuff and you're trying to get out of town fast. They don't leave the coffin behind. Right, I'm trying to think, figure out like how many people knew about the coffin? Maybe everybody. I mean, it may have been such a part of their culture that nobody was gonna forget about it. But if you go to Exodus chapter 13, it makes the journey. Um, Exodus chapter 13, verse 19, they probably left some stuff behind in Egypt, right? Like mom and dad and their kids get on the road and it's like, ah, oh, did you grab that? No, I forgot, I forgot about that. I didn't grab that. What they don't forget is the coffin of Joseph. In Exodus chapter 13, verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And then you don't really hear about them again. I mean, they're just, hey, we took them out of Egypt. 
And you have all these wanderings and all these stories and all these conquests and we're trying to settle the land and we're talking decades of of time. And then you fast forward to Joshua chapter 24 and these bones pop up again, this coffin pops up again and at the very end of Joshua, at the very end of Joshua, Verse 32, as for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. Like I don't have any idea how many people actually carried this thing before it actually got there. But the people that originally started carrying it didn't finish the job, right? Because all those people die because they were fearful of the big giants Uh, that were in the land and God makes them all wander around until their kids are the ones that go into the promised land. So the people that first start carrying this thing get to the end of their life and they're like, hey, I'm not gonna get there. You're gonna have to take over. It's your job now to get this coffin to the promised land. And those guys may have died and said, hey, I didn't make it, but this was passed on to me and now it's your job to get this to the promised land. His body is a visible sign that this is not the end of the story. The implication, the promises of what we believe God is going to do should define the hope we cling to and pass along to others as we die. The promises of what we believe God is going to do should define the hope we cling to and pass along to others as we die. Think about the implications of this, right? The promises of what we believe God is going to do should define the hope we cling to and pass along to others as we die. It's not just that we cling to what God has done, right? We've, we've spent two plus years in Genesis talking about what God has done for his people, promises that God made, promises that God has kept, we, we love the gospel message of Jesus coming to this earth, living a perfect life, dying on the cross for our sins. But we have got to be people who have a strong understanding and belief of what God has still yet to do. Some of us are experts on what God has already done. Right? We could talk for hours on, on what God has done. But I think a lot of us still fall into the, the ignorant, the, uh, the young category when it comes to what God is going to do in the book of Revelation. Um, and that's why we are going to that book because we know what God has done, right? And it's so important to the foundation because it gives us belief and hope in what he's going to do. But the conversations that I want us to be able to have with our kids extend beyond the Old Testament stories, and it extends beyond the stories of Jesus and his parables. I want us, not not the, the educated seminary guys in our church, I want every single person, every single member in our church to be able to have conversations about what we believe God is going to do. I want us all to be able to answer questions when somebody says, what do you think about the Antichrist? Oh, I know about the Antichrist. 
What do you think about um, the four horsemen in the book of Revelation and, and this time that's supposed to come with famine? Well, I, I have a belief system about that. I know what I believe about that and what God's word teaches about that. What do you believe about the millennial reign? And what do you believe about Satan being bound? Like, those are the type of things that I want it to be common knowledge within this church. We built this church, we established this church, we planted this church on a belief that the hope of the coming Jesus is what defines us and gives us reason to meet every week, right? He's resurrected, yes, but he's coming again for another visitation, right? Like that's the hope that, that, that Jake or Joseph's giving to his family here at the end, right? He says, um, I'm about to die, but God's gonna visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He says, there's promises about what God is still going to do that I'm clinging to. And those promises have been fulfilled, right? God did visit them and Moses shows up and leads them out. But what I want us to be clinging to as we die and the things that we're passing on to our kids and our family members is a strong belief system in what it means for Jesus to come back a second time. So I'm excited that as we end the book of Genesis that we're looking forward to, hey, we've been talking a lot about what God has done Now we get to look forward to and learn about what God is still yet to do. The promises that we're clinging to, just like these patriarchs. Things that God has yet to do, and some of us may die before he does them. And we we have to defer that hope to the afterlife when we wait for Jesus to come. But I want us to be able to cling to those hopes as strongly as we cling to the things that God has already done. The end of Genesis, two points. Number one, it begins with a man in a garden. It ends with a man in a coffin. It reminds us of the seriousness of sin, right? We go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We have a man in a garden enjoying life with God. We fast forward to chapter 50. It ends with a man in a coffin. The serpent's lie continues to affect mankind. You won't surely die. And yet time and time again, we see man after man after man die in the book of Genesis. The hope, though, is that there is a visitation that is coming. And the application for us is that we cling to the initial visitation that has come and we find hope in the final visitation that is to come. In Luke chapter 1, children of Israel are expecting God to visit them and he does at that first Christmas. Some of, it, some of them missed it. But Zechariah says in verse 67 of Luke chapter 1, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days." Zechariah says, the visitation that we've been waiting for has come. He's here. The Messiah has come to deliver us. We know, probably in ways that Zechariah didn't understand, that this was just the initial coming. It was the initial phase of salvation. And it's Revelation 22 that we look to now as believers in the New Testament as our hope. 
Revelation chapter 2, verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The application is that we cling to the initial visitation that we celebrate at Christmas right now, that Jesus did come. He came and rescued the children of Israel from Egypt. He came and rescued us from our sin, and he will be coming once again to set us free from sin and death for all eternity. Our um, family worship questions that I want us to work through um, this week, and really the next couple of weeks since we won't meet next Sunday. Um, First, review the book of Genesis and highlight some of the key stories we've covered over the past two years. We did that through the videos this morning. Um, It'd be a great opportunity to kind of review Genesis as a family and go back some of the key stories. Um, Some of the things that we've talked about over the past couple of years and then number two, which stories are your favorites and why? What are some of the key stories that stand out to you and um, are some of your favorites? And number three, what are some key things that we learn about God from the book of Genesis? Um, some things to, to lead your discussion this week if you're um, organizing a, a time of worship with your family in your home. Like I said, we'll, we'll come together to celebrate um, the Christmas season once again for Christmas Eve. Um, on Saturday at 5 o'clock, I want to invite you to be here with your families if you can be. We won't have services next Sunday. And then our application Sunday will be two weeks from today as we really wrap up um, all of our discussion in Genesis and then um, look ahead to uh, what God has in store for us in the future. Let's pray together. God, we praise you and thank you for uh, just the hope that we find in Genesis chapter 50. Um, you wouldn't expect to find the type of hope um, that we find in the midst of death. Um, But God, we're so thankful that while sin has its effects and the serpent who led us astray with his lies, um, we see the the, the error of our ways in Genesis 50 as we say goodbye to two pillars of the faith. Um, But God, we're thankful for the hope that's contained in those deaths, Uh, the fact that we're gathered to those that have gone before us, that Our life doesn't cease to exist once we die, that life continues to go on, and ultimately there's a hope of resurrection to come. Um, God, we're thankful for the truth that there is a visitation that's still yet to come, Uh, and we too are going to be gathered to a permanent land, much like the patriarchs had hopes for. Uh, God, I pray that we would be faithful until that day. God, help us to live faithfully so that our, our funerals our opportunities for our faith to be communicated to the masses. God, I pray that we would finish well by starting now and being faithful to influence those around us. God, I pray that when we come to the end of our life that we have a grand audience to hear, much like Joseph on his final days had his greatest days of faith. God, we pray that we all would finish well and have our greatest days still before us as well. God, we thank you for the Christmas season. We thank you for the visitation that has already happened where you sent your son Jesus to be the, the, the perfect lamb of sacrifice so that we can, we can enjoy fellowship with you and know that we've been completely forgiven. God, we're thankful that we don't have to fear like Joseph's brothers feared that, that retaliation was gonna come at some point. God, we're thankful that you have forgiven us completely of our sins. We're thankful that, that we don't, Uh, we don't owe you anything back as payment, that we could never pay that back. Father, we're thankful that our service to you is out of love and out of a relationship 
out of an adoption into your family. God, we're thankful that, that we can enjoy fellowship with you as we long for and look forward to the visitation that's still to come. God, give us wisdom and preparation as we get ready to move into the book of Revelation, that you would teach us in ways that we've never been taught, that we would comprehend and understand things that we've, we've never been able to clearly see. God, I want us to be able to come out of our next study confident in what you're going to do so that we can pass those promises on to others. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.